This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 18, recorded on October 17, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lionel Chow. Thanks for being here, Lionel. Nice being here. Uh, we're both from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and we're doing an episode on TWIPO today uh, regarding Ewing sarcoma because we've cajoled Dr. Jeffrey Turetsky to participate in our podcast today. Dr. Turetsky is here for a symposium we hosted on musculoskeletal tumors, uh, specifically on malignant bone tumors. Gave a, one of the keynote speeches and he agreed to participate in our podcast. So, Jeff, thank you for being with here with us today after this long, draining symposium. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Thank you very much. So if any of our listeners has questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it a long time from now, feel free to email us at TWIPO at solvingkidscancer.org. And if it's something we can't answer, we'll pass it along to Dr. Turetsky. So, Jeff, you... Uh, have a um, history of training in the Midwest, growing up in the Midwest, and then moving to East Coast. Can you tell us a little bit about your training history and how you got into pediatric oncology? So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, I was responsible for a fundraiser that was raising money for the American Cancer Society. And they found my personality to be similar to a pediatric oncologist at Wisconsin at the time named Jonathan Finlay, who's now at Children's of Los Angeles. And so they introduced me to Jonathan, and I had had some laboratory experience, and he was looking for somebody to come in and do some work with hemopoietic stem cells, and I was that person. So I worked for him and learned uh, um, about hemopoietic stem cells and did an undergraduate um, thesis with him, and he taught me about pediatric oncology and all of those um, intangibles that um, I think go into being an outstanding physician, and uh, after that, the rest is um, history. I went to medical school at Minnesota. Um, I went to uh, did my internship at Duke, my residency at uh, Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and along the way, I would hypothesis test. Well, do I want to be an adolescent doctor? No, but I like dealing with adolescents. Do I want to be an intensivist? No, but I really like intensive, highly intensive medical things. So it just kept coming back to Hemonk and. Um, six years of fellowship at the NIH, and here I am. <laughs> so, you know, you're one of the rare breeds of people who see patients and do basic laboratory research. It's difficult to balance those two. Where rare, along... rare breed, as in like the dodo, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. hope it's not going to become extinct. But where along that line did you get interested in research, and how did you get research training? Well, I actually started... Um, doing research uh, in my freshman year of college. Well, not so much research, but working in a lab. Um, and it was because I went to the University of Colorado and I was an out-of-state student that um, the, the costs were very high. And because of that, I was able to um, secure some funding then called work study. And that would allow me to work in a laboratory and the professor paid a small amount and I would get the rest. The rest came from the, from the government. And um, so I started working with David Prescott, who's in the molecular and cellular biology department at uh, University of Colorado as a freshman. 
and um, uh, and then from there it was everything built on everything else because I could always apply for the next job saying I had experience and so I went from there in my sophomore year I worked with Andy Ball at Wisconsin in fact doing vaccinia virus work um, and uh, thymidine kinase assays uh, for the fellow and um, then the junior and senior year uh, with Jonathan and then it was pretty clear that research was important and so when I got to the end of all my clinical training, um, it was time to go back and decide, do I want to have a research component to my career? And the answer was, I'd like to try. And um, success breeds continuation. So, right. so tell us how you uh, got from uh, your start in pediatric leukemia research and sort of uh, got into solid tumors and more specifically into human sarcoma. Well, the, the leukemia research was actually a failure. I, I tried to grow myeloid leukemia cells back in the 1980s, right? Apparently, it's still difficult to do that. And uh, I was going to differentiate them with vitamin D. Well, it's, uh, you know, um, I can tell you a story. I was, I was, had a patient one time who was um, sort of at the end of life care in Wisconsin, in, um, I'm sorry, during my residency. Um, and uh, um, Hal Moore was the chairman of pediatrics at uh, Medical College of Virginia. And we met with him in trying to decide, this is a kid who was in intensive care with a white count of about 200,000, and we were talking about giving him some vitamin D analog, and he kind of sits back and he kind of looks at us, he says, so what's this kid going to do with 200,000 neutrophils? <laughs> and, you know, but I, I think, you know, that, that was, you know, um, but it wasn't so much leukemia work as it was basically asking a basic question about, you know, about biology, and um, uh, my first paper was on effective gamma interferon on normal human hemopoietic cells. So it wasn't so much about leukemia, but just being able to ask a good question. Well, that's what science is all about, postulating a hypothesis and trying to come up with some kind of an answer. What got you interested in Ewing sarcoma then? So uh, it's actually very interesting. The first patient that I ever knew that died of cancer was somebody I met while a junior at Wisconsin. He was a freshman. He died of Ewing sarcoma. Um, at the NIH during my fellowship, because of the work that Jim Miser and um, uh, Ian uh, McGrath and others had done in the late 70s, um, iphosphamide and etoposide was a, um, a therapy that was included on, in, at the NIH for quite a while at that point because they had MESNA. So they had a very large population of patients with metastatic Ewings. And it doesn't take long to realize that patients with metastatic Ewings need something better. And so um, it seemed a natural place. And then the, the sort of the triple uh, crown of that the, 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 was the fact that Chris... Um, Denny and Olivier Delatra and others working in the early 90s um, were able to clone the breakpoint region. And so using RT-PCR, it gave us an inroad into a disease that otherwise would have been hard to get traction with. And you were working uh, with uh, who, whom in, in your fellowship years? So the first um, uh, three years in the lab were with uh, Len Neckers. <clears throat> and uh, Len had had a long-standing interest in antisense oligonucleotides, and the idea was well, we could get rid of EWS fly with antisense. And then um, as that became a little less attractive, um, I started thinking about cytokines, and I wanted to learn about cytokine signaling. And uh, I switched over, and I worked with Lee Hellman um, and um, Derek Leroy, who was really a signaling guru, an IGF-1 guru at the time. And um, I learned signaling from them. And uh, it gave me an entree into my career. So I forgot to mention at the beginning that you're now professor, uh, tenured professor at Georgetown and the Lombardi Cancer Center. Um, you have a highly successful uh, laboratory-based program, and you're also seeing patients. Uh, 
what are some of the challenges that you found in, in this career? I think balance. You have to find the right balance to get everything done. And um, one time somebody said to me, it's really not balance, it's harmony. In other words, something may be out of alignment. At one time in your career, you're going to have to push something a little harder, but you're going to have to feel some harmony with the big picture. And I think that's really the case. Right now, we're pushing really hard on the laboratory side. And, you know, we sort of backed a little bit away from clinical care, but I'm still uh, staying active with that. And I think in the end, um, you got to look back over your whole career and say, you know, was this, did I find some harmonic resolution that worked? And um, I think at times it feels a little bit, you know, off kilter, but uh, at the end of, you know, when we look back, I look back over the last five years, the last 10 years, the last 15 years, gosh, the last 20 years, and I think about what we've accomplished, and I'm very proud of that, and I, I hope that we can look back 20 years from now and say we've moved that much further ahead because I think we'll really have gone somewhere. So your interest in, in Ewing sarcoma started very early on, as you mentioned, with this patient, and then your interest in inhibiting EWS fly one started pretty far back as, as you know when you were a fellow, and that's still what you're pursuing. So can you tell us a little bit about the science you're doing and the approach you're taking? Well, the original approach was based on this idea of antisense, and then later on when people discovered in, uh, inhibitory RNAs, that became sort of the way to inhibit messages. But the problem with all those approaches is that delivery of oligonucleotides to human tumors is still in a field that hasn't yet um, become solvent, let's say, because there's um, a challenge in the delivery of the, 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 uh, the materials to the tumors. And so it became apparent that this EWS fly was going to be a good target, and the question was just how do you go after it? And you know, about 10 years ago, we were scratching our heads and we thought, well, let's make a drug. And you know, we had to figure out how to do that. And we had no idea really where we were going at that point, um, except that we knew where we wanted to get to, which was we wanted to get a drug that could be useful for inhibiting the EWS fly fusion protein of Ewing sarcoma. So how did you go about making a drug? Do you have a drug? Well, do we have a drug? <laughs> no, I want to be very clear about that. We don't have a drug right now. What we have is some lead small molecules that um, have some promise, but um, it's, it's not been as easy as we thought it would be to translate that. So um, for those who are wondering, the difference between a lead compound in a laboratory and a drug, it's all about the, the delivery and the formulation. And they kind of go hand in hand. Delivery is related to formulation, and somewhat formulation is related to delivery. And they're sort of a, um, they're very much a circular sort of thing. And you tweak one thing, you might lose something on the other. And, and so it, it's, we, we've got to struggle with that. And that's where we're, we're at right now with this. I think that the um, entity that we have is very promising, what we call YK4279, is a very promising uh, molecule but we have to figure out um, how to give it, and that's going to that's gonna take some time. Can you tell us a little bit about how you identified this lead compound? Was it through a massive screening uh, um, approach or some other approach? Um, actually, it was not through a massive screening. Um, in the same way that a good, uh, a good clinician um, takes a look at all the evidence and uh, selects what they think are the one or two key diagnostic tests to, to cone, really to cone in on the diagnosis, um, I'd love to say we did that with the small molecule. You know, we, we picked the 10 best chemicals in the world and we like went after it. But what we did was we basically said, if we really want to inhibit EWS fly, we ought to start with something that sticks to EWS fly. We ought to start with 
going, you know, it's Sutton's law, right? Why do you rob banks? Uh, because that's where the money is, right? So, so let's find a molecule that sticks to EWS fly, and then let's worry about functionally what it's going to do. And um, that was the approach we took. And the place where we, we got lucky, um, in the words of Louis Pasteur, you know, fortune favors the prepared mind. Um, we got lucky in the sense that we had already discovered that RNA helicase A was a partner protein, and this small molecule, at least at some level, seems to exert its effect by keeping those two proteins apart. And that's a very um, novel thing in the way of drug development, and um, it's what we call a small molecule protein-protein interaction inhibitor, the SMPPII. Sounds like a mouthful. <laughs> So, so what is this uh, molecule? Uh, uh, you've done some testing, I presume, in, in vitro, is that correct, in cell lines? Uh, and what is this molecule capable of doing uh, to EWS fly cells? Then? So we've extensively looked at it biochemically um, in a complete cell-free system, just with the proteins, mm -hmm. um, binds EWS fly. Um, we've dissociated a peptide from EWS fly. We, we think that it's either a direct or an indirect displacement. Um, that was all published in the journal uh, Nature Medicine in 2009. So that's all been published. And we've shown um, a number of EWS fly functional assays are altered by the small molecule. Um, there's a cyclin D splice selection, which is affected by EWS fly, and this molecule reverts it. There's a transcription activation assay, which we've often used to, to measure effects and this certainly shuts down that transcriptional activation. Um, and then at a, at, a, at a cellular level, we show that it leads to apoptosis in Ewing sarcoma cells. Um, not exclusively. There are a few other cell lines that are affected. Uh, obviously, haven't seen a clear pattern in that, but um, we think that whenever you put a molecule in biologic space, there's going to be things happening. And one of our challenges is to figure out what else is happening with this small molecule. How much uh, work do you think then you have yet to do to sort of bring this, understand it more completely enough to sort of try to bring it to the clinic? Well, I think that there's two parts to your question. One is what's it going to take to bring it to the clinic? And that will require a formulation that allows us to reasonably inhibit or importantly regress the growth of xenograft tumors. And then once we have that, we'll know how to give the drug, and then we can advance the phase one clinical trials and, and see how we do in terms of toxicity with people. And frankly, we don't have to know anything more about its mechanism to go that far. I mean, that can happen on an independent pathway for mechanism. In fact, mostly, usually does. And usually does, products, right? right. I mean, to be honest, the most drugs are like that. We, we've got some wonderful mechanistic insights into, into this particular compound that we're going to be able to follow up on, and I hope that those mechanistic insights will be informative not only about um, oncogenesis, but transcriptional uh, effects in oncogenesis, and that that might be informative um, for other diseases where we would go after um, small molecule protein inhibitors uh, in other diseases or in transcription to modulate um, you know, other cancers. So um, I don't know what, what awaits us on the clinical development side. I mean, every time we do an experiment, there's going to be you know, it's going to tell us what hopefully we'll need to do next. And, you know, um, until we're there, I don't think we'll know what it is. It's, it's, a, it's still a mystery. What, what you're entering is sort of the domain of industry, right, and pharmaceutical companies and all their teams of people that usually get put on something. And, you know, people quote 10 to 15 years and one, one point, million, yeah, 
billions of dollars for drug development. How is it that you at an academic center can undertake this kind of work and how are you being funded and so forth? Well, we've been fortunate that we actually did get one of the um, ERA recovery grants, uh, what was called an RC4 mechanism. And that, that currently is supporting those animal trials where we're, we're figuring out how to give it. Um, if some large company said, you know, we're really interested in this and we've got 20 chemists standing by to start, and, and, and 20 chemists, um, two pharmacologists, and a team of animal experts standing by to help you, I would pick up the phone and call right away. I, you know, I, I, I would love for that to happen. But because the population of Ewings is such a small group, it's been extremely difficult to get you know, industry uh, on board at an early stage. I think when we've proven a principle that I think things will come around, but I think we're going to have to slog it out. And you know, if, if, if somebody jumps on the bandwagon and says, you know, we can provide you know, this level of resource support, then that would be great. But I think for now, um, we just have to do the best we can. And we do make contacts every now and then. We make forays into various companies, or if they contact us, we'll follow up. But invariably, um, we have had a hard time getting anybody to bite. How much of your time is spent trying to get funding or get people to bite, as opposed to doing actual science? Well, I think it's too much. I mean, I, I would say that between writing grants and doing those kind of efforts, it's probably 30 to 40% of my time. It's, it's a lot. I, I would like to say it should be 10% or less. And, um, but, you know, uh, when we made the decision to move this forward, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. Um, if I had it to do over again, um, one could say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't be crazy to want to do this. But it's also part of me says, if I don't do this, who will? I mean, this is our crazy molecule. Um, we've got to know whether it's going to work or not. There are people out there that potentially could seriously benefit from this if it was helpful. And so I feel like ethically there's an obligation to push this thing forward despite all that's happened along the way. Do you have any advice for students or uh, trainees that may be thinking about doing a physician scientist type of career and um, looking back? Uh, I mean, you're still only halfway through it. You've got a good, you know, 30 more productive years. I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope so. Wow. But, you know, yeah, um, 30 years from, would be good. <laughs> from, your, from your experience to date, uh, do you have any advice for students that, you know, because a lot of people are, are, are worried now that with the funding situation and it's just too much to take on and, and not worth it. Well, I think the rewards from doing this are really immense. Even if, even if it stopped today, I feel like we've made a contribution and I feel very satisfied with what we've done. And if you can get to that point in the career, um, I mean, looking at, at what we've published and, and the kinds of ideas we've espoused and, and how we've gotten others to start to think as well, you know, I think we should feel really, you know, pretty good about that. I'm not satisfied because we're not done yet. But I, I think that if somebody even got that far in a career, you could say, wow, that was, that was really good. Um, I think the biggest thing people need to think about is, is life's timing, is the overall timing and how long it takes to get from point A to point B. I think that um, people have to be careful to get the kind of training they need, enough focus in that training, but then they have to be ready to go out and start to do what needs to be done in terms of you know writing the grants and, and getting the work done. Because if you spend too much time in training, you get I think you get um, beyond where you're going to be attractive as a, as a junior faculty. 
And you have to find the right balance. And also your family, your personal life. is You've got to balance that. It's critical to balance that. Um, and if you don't, you won't be happy. You have to balance it all out. So um, people who do very long MD-PhDs and then start doing multiple fellowships and things, um, and they may not you know, start um, an independent career until they're in their 40s, I think that's a very long time. And I think that given the types of training that people do today, um, it's, it's possible. And I think I would be very careful about how you pace your training in your career. Great. Those are really uh, uh, important words for somebody like me to hear because I've, I've just, I'm coming out of uh, exactly those, that set of training that you just described. Um, it just occurred to me that, uh, uh, you know, given the, the, what you were talking about in terms of um, uh, getting this compound up and off the ground, uh, that uh, this is like a prime compound for, um, we had Peter Adamson on a few episodes ago talking about this virtual pediatric oncology uh, 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 pharmaceutical company that uh, uh, the COG has an initiative to, to, to partner with, and this would be a, you know, a prime um, area for which to, to look into for that type of uh, type of enterprise. Right, yeah, so for listeners who might be interested in refreshing their memory about that, um, it was episode nine. That might be uh, the kind of, um, this might be the kind of project that would be suitable for that virtual pharmaceutical company that he was right. talking about. So, great, well, it's been a long day, I know, and thank you for joining us, and we have to get you to your ride to the airport, so uh, I think I think we'll wrap it up there. Again, if anyone's interested in sending a comment or a question, we're at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org, or you can post a comment on iTunes. We encourage you to do that. It increases our ranking on the podcast list. You can also follow us at Twitter, uh, at Twippo Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks again to Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, Scott Kennedy, and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.